Okay, good morning. My name is Dale. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and uh, I have the privilege of speaking before you this morning and going over this wonderful passage. Red Bull gives you... Anyone remember? Those were a lot of commercials that were around for a while. I don't know if you youth remember those commercials. If you've seen those commercials, don't drink Red Bull. It's not very good for you. Uh, Anyone ever had a drink of Red Bull and found themselves unfortunately grounded after they drank it? That did, it did not, in fact, give them wings. You're not alone. Uh, in 2014, a, a uh, plaintiff of drinkers brought a case against Red Bull, claiming that the drink did not, in fact, give them wings. They called it false advertising. Uh, it didn't even enhance their reaction time or their mental ability. One drinker claimed, in fact, that he had been drinking Red Bull since 2002, but, quote, had seen no improvement in his athletic performance. It seems silly, but in order to avoid the cost of litigation, Red Bull settled on the case. They agreed to pay everybody that had had a Red Bull drink from 2002 until 2014, $10, or a $15 voucher for Red Bull products. If that was you, congratulations. You can leave now. I wouldn't be offended to go claim your $10. It's false advertising. Sometimes it's an indictment against a company for what might be seen as an exaggerated um, or falsified claim. Sometimes it's an indictment against the consumer, in this case, for taking seriously what was obviously meant just to be a catchy tagline. Today, it's a more serious matter. It's an indictment by John the Baptist against Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John, because of his current circumstance, John's actually in prison in this chapter, because of his current circumstance, he has found his expectation of Christ's coming kingdom and lordship to be misaligned with his experience. It's not his current reality. And he's reaching out in what seems to be, from the text, a despondent state of mind. Uh, Jesus answers then the only way that Jesus can with reminders, but it's going to take a little bit of, of study to figure out what Jesus is saying to him. So today, what I'd like to do is we're going to zoom out a little bit and look at the ministry of John the Baptist in perspective and in context, context of the overall story of salvation. And then we're going to fo- focus on what we can learn from Christ's response and also what it means for our lives when we're in a difficult situation and we look to Christ for answers. So let's pray as we begin. Lord, we pray that you be present with us this morning, that our hearts that are so prone to hardness uh, often so such infertile soil for your word to fall that this morning it would not be true, that this morning you would soften us to hear you, to see how you reach out to those who are despondent, how you comfort those who are mourning, and what that means for all of us, how you comfort us in this room, even in difficult circumstances. So help us to know you more. Help us to give you glory in the way we listen to you this morning. And it's in Christ's name. Amen. So first, I think it would be good to get a 
portrait of the significance of John the Baptist because he's kind of a, he's not a bit player in the Gospels. He kind of matters. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, if you'll remember, the first narrative in the Gospel after you get, um, after you get through why the book is being written is the story of the miraculous uh, conception and birth of John the Baptist. Remember old man Zachariah and Elizabeth being told that they're gonna have a child. That immediately precedes the story of Mary's miraculous conception uh, right after in the Gospels. So John, John's birth is significant. He, he's coming right before the Messiah in the story. And where does it land? If we wanna look at it, we wanna look at it in scale. So we've got a handy dandy map. Uh, you'll see here it's tiny, but I'll walk you through it just so you know. Uh, from the, everything in the middle, that's kind of what you'd call Old Testament narrative. All the things on the top, the things on the top are the prophets and when they were writing in comparison with the narrative and the things on the bottom, that's just Psalms, Proverbs, book of poetry, books of the law written at those times. And so you'll see the story of God creating the universe and everything, life, the universe and everything on this side. You'll see the period of judges and then the period of kings in the middle where you see so much prophetic work and you see so much rejoicing and song. And then because of Israel's continued disobedience, because they've pretty much failed to live up to the Lord in every standard, uh, there's 70 years of exile. That's when the prophet Daniel writes, that's when the prophet Ezekiel writes. And then also because of the Lord's grace, after that period of exile, they get to come back to Jerusalem, they get to rebuild the temple. Um, it's only after Ezra and Nehemiah there, there's a period of 400 years between the ending of the Old Testament and what we see at the beginning of the Gospels in the New Testament. 400 years that the Bible doesn't give us specific accounts for, though we can fill it in with history. Alexander the Great took over the entire region and ruled it till his death in 323 BC. Uh, then, after that, Ptolemy took it over until he was defeated by the Seleucids, who then took it over. And then under that reign, actually there was a small rebellion. The Jews tried to regain some religious freedom and were successful. It was really cool. For about 79 years, they were free and then they were taken over by Rome, which is where we find them at the beginning of the New Testament when the gospels are, are the story is going on. And they have been appointed a kind of client king, Herod the Great, who is now over the region just as a, as a sort of subject of Rome. And uh, if you imagine yourself as a faithful Israelite, think about that for a minute. You have known only in your history being ruled by others. It's been centuries since the last faithful testimony of the Lord has spoken. You don't even know if God is paying attention to your story anymore. You read old stories as they would of the Lord who is mighty to save, who calls his people out of Egypt, who wills an inheritance for them, and the pillars of cloud and the pillars of fire that led them to the promised land. You read about King David, how his rule over Israel expanded the kingdom and that he was righteous and that he loved the Lord and was a man after God's own heart. And then in the same vein of David, you hear prophecies of a coming Messiah who will take over and restore the kingdom to the glory and prosperity that you've only read about. Take Daniel 7, just for instance. Daniel prophesies, he says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one, like a son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. 
He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And you hear that, and it echoes your call for the return of a Messiah who's going to come and make all things right. But if you were an Israelite at the time, what is your experience? Nothing but 400 years of silence. Silence and subjugation. Then, suddenly, from Isaiah 43 through five, a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And that's John the Baptist's inaugural verse. It's actually quoted in Luke 3 when John the Baptist comes on the scene in his ministry. Jesus actually quotes from Malachi 3 in this very verse, referencing John. See, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. And it's not just empty words either because John the Baptist's ministry in Israel shook up the people. He challenged the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and King Herod. He did so in such a way as to earn the high praise of the Son of God. There is no one born of woman who is greater than John. It's a, quite a plaque that you could put on in your house if Jesus said it about you. John is a man in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets. The first Israel had heard from in centuries, and his specific job is to herald the way for the coming king. In, in other accounts in Scripture, people even come to Jesus and they say, is John the Baptist Elijah reincarnated? And Jesus' response is kind of like, well, it kind of seems like it, doesn't it? Seems, it seems a little bit like it could be. The people, quote, acknowledge God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized by John. John is doing things in Israel that Israel hasn't seen for 400 years. He is the fulfillment of prophecy that they haven't heard and haven't seen realized in 400 years. But where is he now? He's in prison. And he's not in prison because he broke the law. He's in prison because he called out a false king, King Herod, not the same one from uh, pre, you know, the Gospels, but King Herod's son. Herod the Great had three sons also named Herod, and then they also had another child named Herod and another child named Herod, just to keep it really simple. Uh, And uh, he calls out this false king, Herod Antipas, for saying, you have taken your brother's wife as your own. And... Herod at first was a little bit nervous. He didn't want to touch John because John had such a charismatic following. But then he was kind of guilted into imprisoning John on account of that same wife. And I think it's fair to say we don't know what John's expectations for a coming Messiah were. We don't know what he was thinking when he knew that Jesus was going to come into the world and usher in a new kingdom in fulfillment of these prophecies that seemed very much to be at work. But I have to imagine it was not being put in prison. And then when he hears that Christ is out in the world, what what Pastor Kevin preached on last week, which was Christ raising someone from the dead, that report makes it to John in prison. And John, very understandably, has this kind of, well, what about me, Jesus, response to it. I'm still here. 
why are you working out there? You could hear his despondency and the resignation in his words. Are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? That's from the man who, if you'll remember, leapt for joy in his mother's womb when Mary and Elizabeth came together before both of their children were born. So even pre-birth, John was somebody who knew Christ. But he's saying now, if the power of the Lord can't take a tyrant out of office, and if it can't take a righteous man out of prison, what good is it? And have we ever been there? Have you been there in your faith where you're saying, why is the Lord not acting? Clearly it seems in his character to act here, but he's not. I think when we have questions like that, we can look at Jesus' response and it just takes some study to see. There are a lot of adjectives to describe Jesus, uh, but predictability is not one of them. And he has before him these two messengers from John the Baptist, and he had only just finished doing miracles, and uh, this person who's not only a faithful follower of Jesus, John the Baptist, who's in prison, might even be a relative of Jesus, we know that somehow Mary and Elizabeth have some relation, uh, his first response isn't to go visit John in prison and comfort him, right? Which we might do, oh, my cousin is in prison, he's despondent, maybe I should go actually see how he's doing. But he doesn't. Rather, he goes on a quick, he rolls up his sleeves, he goes on a quick miracle spree, and then he gives John disciples what at first glance appears to be a non-answer, not a direct answer to what John's question is. It seems uh, Jesus' response is almost reminiscent of Michael Scott from The Office here when he speaks harshly to Pam and then turns and he says, Pam is a wonderful person and a gifted artist, though I'd never say it to her face. Why wouldn't you say it to her face? I'd never say it to his face, but John is a good friend and a faithful servant of the Lord. Go to prison. Tell him. Jesus isn't Michael Scott, though. Point number one for those keeping score. His words always carry more meaning. And I think if we understand what Jesus is saying correctly, he's showing compassion to John, but he's speaking to him in a bit of code that John, being a faithful servant, would understand. First note, uh, just kind of importance, the uh, CSB that we're reading from right now, does it, it, it says at that time. So John's disciples come, at that time Jesus gets up and does all these miracles. Uh, there are other translations, the ESV, one of them that kind of renders it a little bit more literally, which is to say at that very hour. So before you think that Jesus seems almost lackadaisical in his response to John, actually, John's disciples come to him, whatever he was doing, and then in response to that, Jesus gets up and says, okay, time to work out some miracles. Time to teach John a little bit of a lesson. He responds to John's question with urgency and intentionality, and then proceeds to do what only the power of God can do, which is heal and cast out darkness. And then his actual words, what he says to John in this passage, contain a real beautiful biblical truth because uh, he could just say to John, I'm doing miracles. Tell me whether or not I'm the one you're expecting. Come on, like who else is doing this? But he says some very specific words. They are these. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor are told the good news and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. 
It's not exactly an answer to why am I in prison and are you the son of God at first? But if we look at those verses in context, they're actually kind of a composite from the book of Isaiah, the same prophet that foretold of John's coming. Isaiah 29, 18, on that day the deaf will hear the words of a document and out of deep darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35, five through six, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And then Isaiah 61, one, the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And if you look at those relevant verses, you'll see Jesus is citing times, specific times in the gospel of Isaiah, in the prophecy of Isaiah, when the prophet is foretelling of God's mercy and salvation for the kingdom of Israel. These are miraculous signs and wonders. The ones that Jesus has been doing and just did are to, for the express purpose of responding to John They're the vindication of his ministry and fulfillment of these prophecies. He's saying, John, remember the story of salvation, the same story that said you were gonna come and make the way for me. I'm now doing the things that that story said I would do when it's time to make peace in Israel. They're happening right now. These miracles and signs that I just worked, I did specifically for you. The prophecy is being fulfilled right now. But also... It keeps going. If we were to take those verses in some more context, a little bit more context, we're gonna see that Jesus is even giving a little bit of a fuller message to John the Baptist. In Isaiah 61.1, he actually doesn't finish the verse. He starts it, spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Well, that sounds like the Messiah that we were hoping for, right? I mean, that sounds like what you would hope Jesus would quote to John in full, I'm coming to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. When you're a prisoner, that seems like a pretty comforting verse. Why didn't Jesus finish it? I think probably because Jesus needed to expand our definition of liberty to a little bit more than just literal prison. I think he has an answer baked into Isaiah for more of what he's saying to John. And if we look at Isaiah 29, that first verse in context, you'll see he's actually saying a few more things. More of the verse, it says, I know it's small, so anyone that sat up front, that here's your reward, you can see the text a little bit easier than those in the back. Uh, You have turned things around as if the potter were the same as the clay. How can what is made say about its maker He didn't make me. How can what is formed say about the one who formed it? He doesn't understand what he's doing. Isn't it true that in just a little while, Lebanon will become an orchard and the orchard will seem like a forest? Then on that day, the deaf will hear the words of a document and out of a deep darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The humble will have joy after joy in the Lord and the poor people will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. So what can you, you can read in this, in addition to the promises of joy and gladness over the Holy One of Israel, there's an incredibly gentle and kind rebuke to John. 
Don't forget, you're the one that's been formed, John. I'm the potter and I know exactly what I'm doing. There have been a lot of applications uh, so far, but this is Jesus saying, don't forget where the story is going because I know the whole story. The first portion of the passage and the last portion warn us, I wanna say, against two different flawed views of how the Lord works in our lives and in the lives of others. And there's been a lot of applications so far, but this is where some land more closely to home. This is what Jesus puts in verse uh, 31. To what then should I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. Then he says, for John the Baptist came, he did not come eating bread or drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. This is kind of like a a subtext of of the judgment of our circumstances or the circumstances of others against what is true in what God reveals in scripture about what faithfulness looks like. And here, uh, he says, this, this section, if you're reading it in the CSB, it's called an unresponsive generation. But what's interesting is they're not unresponsive because they don't have a response, you know? They're not like a kid playing a video game, oblivious of the outside world. The problem, how are they unresponsive? They are unresponsive because uh, they already have a precondition to which they're going to judge every act of faithfulness that they see. I'm gonna judge every situation by its most negative interpretation. We do that all the time. A positive action can be interpreted and judged by its extreme inverse. And here, when Jesus is talking about the way John does ministry, John the Baptist does ministry, and the way that he does ministry, he gives two different examples of righteousness being worked out. And they appear to be completely different examples, completely different lives. John fasted in the wilderness and lived a life of exceptional asceticism, but he was castigated by the ruling authorities as somebody who had a demon. Don't follow that guy, he's crazy. Have you seen him? He eats locusts and honey. Jesus then comes, the son of God comes in, and he sits in the houses of sinners. He eats and drinks with them. He hangs out with the most poor and destitute. And he doesn't fast, and he doesn't refrain from work on the Sabbath. And because of this, the son of God is called a glutton and a drunkard, too licentious, too lax, Is either one of their examples the correct example or the wrong example of righteousness being worked out in someone? Is one more right? I don't think so. I think they're both correct. Jesus isn't, isn't showing John as the negative example of how to live out faith and himself as the positive example of how to live out faith. Uh, he's saying in the context that John was placed, he had a role. His role as the herald of the Messiah was to do exactly what he did, and he did it well, and he played his part well. Christ's role is something a little bit different. And you can't fault them because of their faithfulness to the Father, because they are both faithful. You can only fault them if you assume from the beginning that one of them is wrong, and then you build up the justification for why you're right. And that's not wisdom. The Bible would call that the opposite of wisdom, which is to say foolishness. 
It's also a trap that we Christians can put ourselves in when we champion only one type of faithfulness in the, as, as a public witness. This text is proof positive that two different servants of God can live two different lives of faithfulness based upon what God is calling them to. You cannot hold them in tension with each other. John did what John was supposed to do. Rather, you can celebrate that the Lord uses a diversity of witnesses to make his name great and his way known. And so I think just something, as, a, as an act of just thinking about that, we Christians, we should be slow to put a, a stamp of disapproval on a situation that's morally neutral, gray in what the Bible would tell us is, is right. Um, unless scripture has spoken a clear command, which it does, then humility is a good starting place. Otherwise, the temptation towards Pharisaic judgment is at our door. So be disciplined in your study of scripture but be slow to judge the hearts and intentions of other believers. That's how we look at others. That's when we look at somebody in public and say that's the example of their ministry. But then also what this, the application of this text has something specific to say for us when we judge our own faithfulness of our own life. I wanna urge you pastorally, be slow to judge your perceived faithfulness against the circumstances of your life. That's a weighted scale. It's an uneven measure. A righteous life does not take you on a direct path to comfort in this world. Not only that, but as your circumstances shift for the better or for the worse, and they will, you're gonna be tempted to think that it was because of something you did or didn't do. And you're going to think, the Lord has either blessed me when he hasn't, or the Lord is judging me and condemning me when he hasn't. When your only standard that you can compare yourself is, am I following the word of the Lord? Am I putting all things to Christ? Faithful people end up in prison. It's just something that's true. God can break a heart so that it's more moldable to his liking. When you find yourself at the end of your rope, do what John did. Take your pain and your questions to Christ. An example of this, I think, if you want to look historically at something that's pretty close to the time of the Gospels, because we live in, a, we, I mean, let's be fair, we live in an era of, of blessing, by and large. Um, but you're going to see in eras when Christians didn't, weren't able to bank on the same relative safety that we are now, how their witness in the public life was not only a great champion of the Lord's goodness to them and the Lord's peace that he gave them, but also in comparison with the world where it really sings of how God takes care of his, of his people. Uh, you can look, this is from Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is a kind of a classic piece of Christian literature. If you ever wanna feel, uh, depending on how you, how you read things and feel about them, if you ever wanna feel either really, really good about yourself or really, really bad about yourself, that book will get you there. Uh, you just, it just depends on how you read about the historic martyrdom of the church. But it actually has a really great uh, example when you're looking at the epitaphs of uh, people who have died in the catacombs of Rome because you can have, you see Christians that have died, horrific, martyred deaths. Same type of death that John's going to die here shortly. How do you help know what's a, what a Christian grave is? Well, namely the markings of their martyrdom can be found in their bones. Broken ribs and shoulders and bones marked by fire. Heads separated from the rest of their body but the inscriptions on their tombs tell a different story and speak more loudly 
Here lies Marcia, put to death in a dream of peace. Lawrence to his sweetest son, born away of angels, victorious in peace and in Christ. Being called away, he went in peace. Those signs of their life were not signs of peace. Externally, you're looking at them saying, not the peace I want, but would you want an external peace that, looks that, that is a normal life that just goes to a grave comfortably or an internal peace that says, my hope is secure because I put it in somebody that I can trust to the end? If you want an answer, we can actually look comparatively at the epitaphs of people that did not die with Christ as their final hope. They tell a different story. People that are not marked by martyrdom. Live for the present hour since we are sure of nothing else. I lift my hands against the gods who took me away at the age of 20, though I had done no harm. Once I was not, now I am not, I know nothing about it, and it is no concern of mine. Traveler, curse me not as you pass, for I am in darkness and cannot answer. Who had peace in the end? Those in the Lord had peace in the end. Those outside of it had none, despite the markings on their bodies. In this narrative today, you'll see that Jesus doesn't actually intervene directly on John the Baptist's behalf right now. John the Baptist ends up with his head on a platter. If we want some idea, though, of how Jesus did intervene on John's behalf and on ours, we can look to a few other interactions he did have with Herod later on in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 13, uh, Jesus, you see, he openly dismisses concerns that Herod's trying to kill him. He says, it says, it tells us, at that time, some Pharisees came and told him, go, get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus' response is awesome because he doesn't care. He says, go tell that fox, look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. On the third day, I will complete my work. If you want to really upset somebody who's in power, tell them that the reason you can't meet with them is because your schedule is keeping you from doing it. Sorry, I'm busy the next two days. Maybe on the third day I'll have an opening. I don't know. He does eventually visit Herod, though, in Luke 23. But this time it's actually more akin to what John the Baptist was, John the Baptist's own interaction with Herod, because Jesus is going before Herod for his own trial. Basically what happened, just kind of the context, Pilate, who's really the, who's, he's the Roman authority of the area, he doesn't want to really deal with Jesus directly because Jesus is, a, you know, just like John the Baptist was, is a political firebrand. How I respond to Jesus if I order his death or if I order him freed is going to, one way or another, it's going to make my life harder because it's going it's to have political consequences for me. So he sends him to Herod. It says, it says, finding that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, Pilate goes, oh, this might be my, my way out. I'll send him to Herod, who was in Jerusalem during those days. Same Herod that had John the Baptist in prison. And Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracles performed by him. Some of the same miracles that Jesus said he was too busy doing to go visit Herod. So he kept asking him questions. But Jesus did not answer him, which is just a, a, a great sign of courage, but also just complete. Uh, for Herod, he would see it as insolence. Jesus says it, this is what I have to do. This is my path forward. I'm not gonna answer a fool according to his folly. The chief priests and scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And then Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing, and sent him back to Pilate. 
It also goes on to say that Pilate and Herod were friends ever since that moment, so at least Jesus is making friends with some people. Um, But we've got an echo here of John the Baptist's own standing before Herod. But the time before, Jesus did did not intercede for John, and John ended up dead. This time, though, Christ stood before Herod and didn't intercede for himself when he had the power to do so. Do a miracle. It will get you off the hook. Just show. Show who you are. But instead, because of Christ's own obedience to follow the will of his Father, he, the Son of God, who knew no sin, became sin for us, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. I think when I say uh, it was too little for Jesus only to set John free from prison because that is not so great a salvation as what Jesus was hoping to accomplish. He would be proclaiming liberty at that time to one captive, but 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, what liberty does John have if he is still bound by his sin? What good would it do us sitting in this room if Christ had interceded on John's behalf, gotten him out of prison, and then ushered in a temporal uh, kingdom in Israel that he reigned, but our sins still bound us captive? Christ completed the work of salvation by taking our sin upon himself, mine, yours, and John the Baptist, so that he might proclaim to all those who are captive in sin, if only they would come and receive it. And I want to look, this is a surprise verse. Uh, This is from Psalm 22. And you tell me, first we'll we'll read um, the first couple verses. You tell me who it seems like it's talking about. And then we'll keep reading a little bit more and see who it really is talking about. This is Psalm 22, starting in verse 9. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me because distress is near and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong ones of Bashan encircle me and they open their mouths against me. Lions mauling and roaring. I am poured out like water. All my bones are disjointed and my heart is like wax melting within me. So far, this seems like an accurate description of John the Baptist. Someone who has known Christ known God since his mother's womb. But then, as we keep going, my strength is dried up like baked clay, my my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, and you put me into the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me, and they've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. And then if we continue, we skip to verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. And all you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in the great assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. 
He rules the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him, even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what the Lord has done. You'll see in the first part of those verses an accurate description, not of John's martyrdom, but of Christ's death. I can count all my bones and they divide my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing, all fulfilled in the death of Christ on the cross. And it was because of the death of Christ on the cross that we can have the rest of Psalm 22, which is all of the, all of the world bowing before the kingship of Jesus. Not just John the Baptist in a literal prison, but everybody who goes to the Lord to be freed from sin will bow down before him, will eat and be glad because kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules the nations. So Daniel 7, that first prophecy, is still accurate. We just have to wait a little bit longer to see it wholly fulfilled. And I have to imagine, Jesus was winking a little bit when he quoted Isaiah 29. For you have turned things around as if the potter were the same as the clay. Because in this one instance, the potter and the clay were the same. And it's because of this that we have hope in this life and the life to come. He is our hope and we should expect no one else. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good to us that in even our plans where it seems so obvious that to us that we don't know how you're working and we don't even know how you could bring about goodness. At first glance, we don't understand how letting a faithful believer languish in prison might still be a fulfillment of your good work. But then you show us when you yourself received an unjust death on our behalf, you took our sins and proclaimed liberty, not just to those in prison, but to those who have been held as slaves of sin. May we remember that and remember that you are at work always and that you are the potter and that we are the clay and we cannot come to you and say you don't know what you're doing because we have turned it around and gotten it backwards. You do know what you're doing and you have held us in your hands from the beginning. And Lord, I pray for us this morning as we remember that for those here where you feel far and we don't understand how you're working. When we don't know how to get back to you, Lord, or how your promises apply to us, help us bring the answer, bring the questions to Christ. Listen for him who has both fulfilled your will and taken our place in those same situations and circumstances that have separated us from you. May we see him and praise him and find great strength in him. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.